Um, hi everyone, I am Ruben Hawaii. I am currently a lecturer in the Asian American Studies program at Penn, and I wrote a question of voice, uh, Indo-European American Feminism Through Music in New York City. Hi everyone, um, I'm Peggy Lee, and I'm a doctoral candidate in American Culture at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And my title, I have to is called, uh, my article is called, uh, Turning Diaspora to Dirt, Addiction and Illness in Asian American Critique. Oh, hi, my name is Tanya Kohong, and then I came from Los Angeles. And then because of the weather, I got kind of cold in New York City, like walking in the rain. Um, so I'm a poet, and then I just started like my doctorate program, like in mythology studies. And um, my poem's gonna be the cost of a breath, and then also another amazing title is the confronting my father's mistress. Hi, I'm Jinjin. I'm also a poet. Uh, my poems in uh, here are Crown of Sonnets called "My Father Cut My Tongue to Say um, Six Estranged Sonnets," and I'm currently an MFA candidate at NYU and an adjunct. Hi, my name is Natasha Gunasena, and I just finished uh, my PhD in African African diaspora studies at UT Austin. Austin. Um, I'm currently an adjunct instructor, um, and my work is on um, Afro-Asian diaspora and queer formations. My article was titled something like Kali and Durga must have rocked Sri Lankan femininity and the poetics of diaspora. Hi everyone, my name is Sonia Thomas. I'm uh, now associate professor at uh, <laughs> Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Colby College, um, and my article is called Cowboys and Indians, Indian Priests in Rural Montana. Hi, uh, so Kintari Sve, I'm a Cambodian American, 1.5, hi Kathy, <laughs> uh, generation. Uh, I, uh, I'm a Sorry, second year PhD student at the Graduate Center in English. Um, I am also a creative writer, an essayist. Uh, have a poetry, a book of a poetry collection was uh, published two years ago, and I, I am officially a librettist now. My opera is going to be premiering at the Kennedy Center in January, and um, I also have a collaboration going on with dancer um, through. Um, New York Live Arts in Chelsea. So we're going to be doing something, uh, a continuation or project called uh, This Mother Slash Land Fabric, which is uh, around um, uh, the story of my mother and her the uniform of her face and as a hotel worker and then integrating uh, the idea of fabric and identity and sarongs. Oh, oh, I, I, I'm, and I appear twice in this issue. Um, uh, I have a piece called Facebook Mama, which is about uh, the day that my mother's Facebook app uh, mysteriously disappeared and I had to problem solve it. And it's uh, looking at, in a humorous way at literacy and its function, particularly digital literacy, and the function of the life of a, a first generation refugee. And uh, the other is an interview called uh, Write Us Into Existence. Thank you, um, and I'm Lili Shi. I'm one of the guest editors for this special issue. I'm Associate Professor of Communication Studies from Kingsborough Community College of CUNY, and I've been here all day, and I've been up ever since 4.15 this morning because of my crying baby, so my brain's all over the place as well. 
Um, another person who I, I forgot. See, um, another person who appeared multiple times in this uh, special issue is Grace Cho, and she is a she actually is one of the person who um, inspired me to pick the the tarot card, the the ghost card, because you know her the the ghost position that's a recurring theme in her work, and she is. Uh, a professor at CUNY, also a college of Staten Island, and she is also she appeared several times in our issue as well. She uh, uh, American movies and another creative um, stories she wrote about you know this Korean mother and her you know trajectory as diaspora relationship with American cinema. Um, so she sent her. Um, uh, thank you and uh, greetings to everyone as well. So this panel is meant to be interactive and informal, like I said, just about storytelling about ourselves and mentoring each other as writers and intellectuals and feminists. So I have these, you know, these two-sentence prompts that I sent out uh, two nights ago to everybody, right? So the first question is, and everybody will have like one or two minutes, you know, um, but you know, as you can see, um, we are extremely flexible with time, right? Uh, I teach intercultural communications. You know, time is actually a big thing that we talk about. So women of color, we have our own logic time. It's called polychronic, you know, time, which is, I think it's totally legit. And, you know, it's a way of um, planning our space and agency in some um, spaces. Anyway, uh, so the first question is, um, what does being an Asian diasporic feminist intellectual mean to you? What's the most significant spurt of that identity? Um, or you can share one afterthought from publishing with us in this special journal. So I hope everybody kind of prepared a little bit on your long commute this morning. <laughs> um, I think for me, what has been um, interesting about this process of republishing, which is also like the first time I've gotten anything published, so like now I, yay, it is possible. Um, and also now I have this expectation that anytime I publish, there's going to be like a nice party and event to celebrate, which we should always do. Um, because I think through this process, and then you know, thinking about um, you know my own positionality as an Asian diasporic feminist and how that's going to influence my scholarship and my teaching is you know making time to you know celebrate the work that we are doing on various different. Um, ways, like from the informal support that we offer our students or, you know, the writing groups that we're in, um, too often we don't take time to, like, you know, recognize um, the support that we give to each other and also to celebrate the stuff that we are doing together. And so, um, you know, taking time to know that um, and then also to stop apologizing for things, too. Um, <laughs> because um, I, I, I find myself doing a lot in my teaching, but also just in general, a lot of being um, in this position is like apologizing for choices that were not choices that I had control of making. And for some reason, I feel like I need to apologize. I don't need to. So um, yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to like take off my literary critic hat off and kind of speak as like a, a creative writer, which is definitely a center of mine and how I kind of navigate and find other people in, in these institutional spaces. And because I don't trust myself to talk off the cuff at this time of the day, and just, I did this morning on the commute like reflect on these lovely prompts that um, Lily sent out. But, 
So um, in, uh, so in my fiction writing, diaspora configures differently as a place of not knowing as a second generation Korean American queer woman. Um, and so through imagination, I'm able to create the questions and answers to mysteries in my family history, uh, gaps in intergenerational trauma, major historical events, ancestors I only know uh, through stories that, and, um, that my family members tell me. So for instance, so I've been like really obsessed with this one uh, ancestor uh, named Tojong. And um, so he was this ancestor who like a long, long time ago wrote like the Korean version of the I Ching. And so, um, but, and he, and he also was like a poet and a civil servant. And so um, he's like famous, you can like look it up online, like for prophesizing the first invasion of Korea by, by the Japanese, like a, a formal prophecy. And so, like, of course, we know kind of the, this, like, long, um, you know, the long, violent colonial occupations of Japan thereafter. And so, for me, like, this kind of question of, like, what does it mean to prophesy violence and, like, what utility is there in it, right? So, I think these questions are best answered in speculative language and position myself, position in the U.S., looking at Korea in a way to like gather and feel in the ways that I can. So maybe in this kind of example I'm giving, it's like diaspora is actually kind of like something psychic too, like something that's like, yeah, so. Well, um, like I think like for me, it's like a little different story than um, most of you. Um, I am an immigrant myself, so I came here when I was 18 years old. So I have to learn English, like from, you know, A, B, C, D, from that time. And um, I was like a writer, I was a poet, so I was writing in Korean, you know, in poet for a long time. And then my friends were like saying, like, what are you writing, you know? So I started translating and all that kind of stuff. And, but for beginning of the life, I have to be survive, you know, to being in America, you know, the culture shocks and learning languages and all that kind of stuff. So then um, I start like writing in English and then I start thinking about like, because I was 18 years old and then you just see the, all the like the women's living in different lifestyle in Korea and here. And um, I start like writing about women issues, and then there's a lot of a different um, method and culture belief in Korea, mostly Asian culture as well too. That women supposed to be there is the term called um, chilgojia, meaning like if you do these these seven things, then you cannot be a blessed, like you know. First thing is like you can you have to marry so in a father's house in a son's house and husband's house right and then you have to be nine years thirty years you know death thirty years you know um, you gotta be just like you know be silent so my term start writing when I was studying MFA in poetry that um, breaking through the silence that. Um, there's so many things that you cannot say. You, you just have to be 
virtue is a silence. You cannot share your own feelings. So I got to study about the Korean women from 15th century, 5th century, whatever. What happened to them, you know? What happened to them? Why they cannot say what they wanted to say? Because of all these cultural backgrounds. And then in terms that, like when I was researching about writing Korean artists, that which I was like a little bit ashamed of myself, not knowing about the Kung Fu women. But I was finding about Kung Fu women 2011. And then so I was research about Kung Fu women. And then I wrote a poem about the Kung Fu women. And when I was writing Kung Fu women, and then I couldn't believe they um, were sexual slavery during World War II. And then Korean got independent like in 1945. But first the women came out announced that I was comfort women was 1991. Her name was Hak Sun Kim. So there was how many years was there? 46 years. And then when she came out, the comfort was comfort women. The reason they couldn't come out, because even though they come out, what the world is going to say, what the culture will say to them, they will say they're still not yet apologized. They're still, sometimes they're even saying, you're not sexual slavery, you're a prostitute. They're still in cold that. So anyhow, so that I think I have to carry their voices. I have to tell them what the story and it's not that just a comfort woman themselves. It's the thousands and thousands of years carrying down the traumas and then not saying what they wanted to say. And um, so the breaking through is the, what's happening to me. And there's a dream, like the breakthrough and then speak up and then making room for the women, making them to breathe, even myself, um, is important. I think um, especially of course, English is my second language, but I have to keep a breaking through and then say what it is, the truth. I think that that's very important. By the way, Lily, I didn't get the, your email. <laughs> <laughs> my 
myself to them, to what they wanted to read. Um, and that was, that's still something I struggle with, right? Like who my audience is. That's like the pivotal thing in my practice and how well, I ask myself all the time um, of who I am really writing for, what my authentic voice really is. Um, and like, what, how do I orient the reader to what I am trying to write? Yeah, thank you. Um, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about the prompt, and for one reason is that I don't, I realize I don't actually use the term Asian American to describe myself, and a huge part of that is thinking about how identities are formed relationally, and just the places I've been in in the U.S., I've been here for about 10 years now, haven't been places with um, a huge concentrations of Asian American populations. So I went to school in semi-rural Minnesota on the border of North Dakota. So it wasn't even you know Minneapolis where there is a, um, a sizable like mall community. Um, and so saying I was Asian American um, in those contexts it didn't allow for any, for me, it didn't allow for a sense of relationality in people. And I also often don't get read as Asian. So I feel very much like I'm of the Asian diaspora, but sometimes it, like I'm not in it um, to, to, um, to riff off of that. And so the identity that I found most useful and salient is um, a woman of color feminist. And I feel like the term woman of color is seems a little almost outmoded today because of just how much it's been appropriated and diluted. You know, like Kim Kardashian is a woman of color, according to some folks, which is completely strips the term from its very radical political roots and the alliances between white, black, Asian, and indigenous feminists that gave birth to that term. Um, and so for me, I'm really interested in what it means to assert that women of color feminist work is not finished. And this is something I see happening in a lot of ethnic studies fields, almost a sense of women of color feminism is done. You know, it's done what it's supposed to, and now we're moving on. Now we have queer color critique, and now we have queer diaspora studies, and all these fancy terms. But, and they're important and, and represent like important gains in the field, but if you return to women of color central texts, like The Bridge Call My Back, Sister Outsider, <coughs> Jordan's work, all of those ideas are there. Um, the Combined Reaper Collective, for example, still remains one of the most you know, relevant kind of documents for thinking about inter intersectional struggle and oppression. And I just don't, I don't think the work is done yet. And also, I was talking to actually Peggy after a panel about how much women of color feminism foregrounds theorizing from the body and using your lived experience as a way to build theory and a larger way of looking at the world. Um, and I've found, yeah, and I've found a lot of times in academic conferences that I've been to lately, the sharing of personal voice and, per and that kind of off-the-body theory is seen as uh, not um, usual. You know, people will say, thank you so much for sharing that, or I'm so glad you used that, and that still gets me because like it's 2019, this should be a given. <laughs> this should be a part of um, our methodology, the drawing from the person. We shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to still be framing it and contextualizing it. In, we shouldn't have to be justifying it, I should say. You know, I mean, there is a frame and a context, but we shouldn't have to say, we shouldn't have to apologize 
for theorizing from that and bringing back to you know sometimes our bodies are our only archives. So then, what do you do in those moments? So I'm so I'm really grateful to be a part of this issue because I'm heartened to see like all the different ways that Asian American studies is moving in as a field and the different kind of ruptures that people are um, taking up and theorizing through. Um, but I think for me, the term that I find most useful is the yeah, woman of color feminist. Thank you. So much of what you just said resonates with me. I, I think the same. Like, I, I didn't really ever see myself as diasporic Asian as, as much as woman of color feminisms. Although, I have to say, last month I just gave a talk on how woman of color feminisms is a misnomer in a lot of ways, because the promise of what woman of color feminisms is versus how it works in the academy sets black feminist thought against often what we used to call third, third world woman feminisms and how third world women feminisms often get stood in for upper um, caste Indian Hindu feminists hired in the academy and women's studies programs as a diversity hire. And so we all fight for our own small territory in women of color to belong to that which we say is women's studies. So the promise of women of color that I love um, seems to be get um, caught um, this also came up because, all of this came up because we, a group of anti-caste academics were trying to talk to NWSA, which is the National Women's Studies Association, about their choice of keynoting Anaparn Hathi Roy, um, and especially given Dalit and Kashmiri critiques of her in South Asian studies, um, to which we were told not to, I don't know if this is being recorded, <laughs> not to, um, we were incorrectly, incorrectly referencing Kumbadi. Um, so this idea of who, who gets to say what and, and reference what is what gets played. Um, so I both love the term to use and think about myself as a mother, as a single parent, as a, as a person who grew up in, in rural community who teaches and researches mostly about issues of race. Um, woman of color, but also the, the problems with how that term gets territorialized in the academy bothers me. Um, but that said, like, diaspora in Asia, I mean, I'm glad I get brought up our empathy work because I get to talk about Kashmir, right? Like, um, when we think of diaspora and, and what is in the movement of people, so much of what I was reading in this I haven't read all of the articles yet, but I was reading through all of them. It's not just Asian America, it's diaspora. Um, and that I so appreciated about this issue because um, I see myself prior to this new research project that I was working on as a South Asian feminist and women's studies scholar because my PhD is in women's studies and I'm a full hire in women's studies. But South Asia doesn't talk about occupation of South Asia by South Asians. Right? Um, we don't talk about the Northeast. We don't talk about um, um, Kashmir when South Asia gets stood, when India stands for South Asia and North India stands in for India, which then is Hindu and upper caste, right? Like all of these things that we say about this region that I usually study. Um, that said, so much of my new work in thinking about diaspora is about issues of occupation. Um, and one of the things that I'm kind of trying to grapple my mind around as I come into South, um, South Asian American studies and Asian American studies 
um, through, through my research right now, is that we assume so much about the diaspora, um, and I'm trying to think through like what the rule means, but also what settler colonialism means. Um, and, and that's been hard, I think, because even though we might say we're in solidarity with, with, with um, indigenous feminists, um, do we, how do we teach these things in our classes? How do we um, write them? Um, you know, even though we say we're thinking through place, how do, how do our very assumptions of who lives in places plays out with, with that which we say is a place, right? So um, just anything about Indian Christians outside of India assumes these upper upper caste enclaves, right? So it's really hard to, it, it just gets said, and I said this in my article here, like I don't want Indian priests in rural areas who are upper caste mostly to be a quirky add-on. Like, oh yeah, we forgot Asians. <laughs> here's, here's Asians. Oh yeah, and here's a weird story in the rule and, and add it on. Um, but to understand like this is how race and placemaking actually functions. Um, and, and if we can kind of push through, um, which I see so many of the articles doing here by just really pushing us to think that diaspora does not mean Asian American. It can mean so much more when we think about diaspora. Um, are, are ways to go to just kind of like say, here are assumptions this is pushing through and widening our scope. And that's, I think, where I'm headed. Thank you so much for the things that you both said because like, I want to reference them. First, um, uh, my, one of my absolute favorite poets uh, is Kashmiri American, Aga Shahid Ali, uh, whose book, uh, The Country Without a Post Office, pretty much changed my life. I read it when I was like 20, and I was going through like a pivotal change in my own life, getting out of an abusive relationship. And, um, and I, the language of exile that he spoke about, and I really resonated with me because of growing up in the Bronx, I was, um, I didn't identify, I definitely don't identify as Asian American, I said this earlier, I identify as a Cambodian from the Bronx, a kind New Yorker. Um, but also, uh, there's just so much to this. You're seeing like lived experience, and I, I don't know how to go into anything that I write academically or, or uh, creatively without referencing my lived experience. It just, it's, it's an opening, and it's a way to then further, further explore more abstract things and more universal things. So, you know, I'm talking about immigration and, you know, being a refugee, you know, having been uh, come here as a refugee, but then I also talk about, you know, uh, womanhood and intersectionality without really intending to, because I do, I do it, I go a roundabout way, I do it in, in the artistic way where it is displayed, but other people can critique it, because, you know, I like for other people um, <clears throat> uh, meanwhile, when I think about the two, first of all, I love that you said diasporas, that's super important. Um, and I, I think about my positionality as a, as a 1.5 generation, for those who don't know, it's a term from sociology that was coined um, to, to encompass a specific generation of people who were born elsewhere but came of age in this country. 
coming of age, meaning like topping at like a 13 years old. I came here when I was a year old. Uh, I was born in Thailand in the refugee camps, and so uh, there's a different kind of like struggle, uh, struggling of identity, culture, language. Uh, for me, I definitely felt the pull of being Cambodian. But then, when I was in school, I was being told and shown different things, and I definitely saw like the capital of uh, you know the capital and deletion of my, of being of my language because of the benefits that came with learning English, with succeeding, and, and all of those things. Um, but for me, like my intellectual identity serves who I am, and it all comes from math questions. Because my parents never talked about what they went through, and you know, and there was this desperation to know, and so I was always trying to find questions. But we don't talk like that in Khmer. We don't have a language for that. So obviously, you know, it was a very quiet household. We didn't talk about our feelings either. We didn't cry in front of each other. We did. We didn't get angry. I was. I'm the angry one. But uh, everybody's scared of me. But if we felt something, we went to our. You know. So you live in that kind of silence, and you take in that kind of trauma. And it's like, okay. So now you're left with all these questions that no one will answer. So you think like American culture TV is going to do. You think that going to sleep, sleep with people would do it. And then I, I realized that I had to be my own uh, historian, personal historian, and ethnographer. So when I so um, grew up in the Bronx, when I went to school in Harlem, basically Harlem has been like a home for me for about 20 years now, for both my degrees and teaching there. And uh, I'm totally a CUNY baby. Um, I found myself in the stacks of the Asian American section, and I looked for whatever Cambodian books there were. This was about 20 years ago. At the time, all there were survival memoirs. That's just the genre. That's how it is. We've only been in this country as a result of the conflict in in Vietnam, and as a result, our presence in the U.S. has only been, you know, a few decades, right? 30 to 40. And as a result, um, Cambodian American literature, diaspora literature, it's ripe for the taking. And so that's what I focus on, partly because nobody was telling me anything, and I was so confused by it, and I felt so alone. And exiled from my own community, even though I was living with the refugees. And the East Asians didn't identify. I, I tried. I tried going to the Chinese Student Association Club. Had lots of friends, but they speak in Cantonese, and then I felt left out, and I didn't get it. And I was just like, they know how to be Asian in a way that I don't get. And then I realized that I just wasn't happy with that term. And so then there's more questions, and I thought maybe if I meet my parents to tell me their story, this will solve it all. And now, after many years later, realizing that the answers weren't as important to me because one, it'd be re-traumatizing them to have them go through the loss of their child, crossing the jungle, you know, giving birth to me, and then you know, living in the Bronx in the eighties. Hello, um, and it was more important to like use my lived experience and how I, and how I am with other people in this world, my position as a way to begin asking questions, but not in just one way, because. I am the child of, of survivors, so I can't sit down. So it's like I'm looking at poetry, looking at it acad academically. I'm looking at uh, you know essay writing, prose, dance, opera. I'm also a, a trained musician in flute and in singing. So you know, for me, it was just like there has to like it was a search for expression of myself as well as finding like answers to the questions that that uh, from my historical community as well as. Myself, and I wish that I knew how to 
slow the fuck down. But it's, I think I'm living, reliving my parents' survival. So that's where I am uh, and, and what I do. And, you know, perhaps one day I can sit and celebrate. I feel like this is the closest I've come. Reading their articles, I feel like it's such a humbling experience. But listening to you, my goodness, I hope you know if this is recorded, right? I think feminist press is like a podcast or something because you speak so powerfully about this issue. Like I think it's brilliant, but when you talk about it, it's like another level of brilliance. You know, um, yeah. Um, anyways, Kathy, do you want to respond to any of that? Or so I just wanted to kind of uh, well, first of all. Second, what Lily has put forth with regard to the power of the issue as a whole, and also hearing you speak about the issue. But um, you know, one of the things that really strikes me again is a through line, and why I seized on Lisa Lowe's notion of undocumented knowledge is that all too often, the stories, the positionalities, and kind of how you come to not only your subject but your creative project. Um, all of that has been on the periphery, right? So part of the labor that we all have to do with regard to academic publishing is highlight in oftentimes very soul-crushing ways the, you know, kind of why uh, particular emphases or stories matter. So that was one thing that really struck with me is that the diversity, and I, I'm using diversity in the best way possible, not in an institutional, you know, to actually talk about variegation as opposed to institutionalized, you know, non-racism, but um, just the sheer diversity of the special issue, I think, is attributable not only to the contributors, but to the editorial vision that guided it. Um, but I do want to, like, also suggest that what really struck me in revisiting the issue is how many of the pieces implicitly and at times explicitly dealt with silence um, as kind of a, like in, in many ways, like the pieces urged me to kind of hear another story or listen differently. And um, from a personal level, that actually resonates. And I'm so struck by the fact that you tried to ask, right? Like your, your parents, like, or, you know, they're not gonna really reveal this. And I had a similar experience as well, so I had no idea my mother lived outside of Nagasaki. Um, but one of the things that I did do, and this is the worst thing I've ever done to a human being, I know it's hard to believe, I, I actually have done um, bad things, but I'm not going to share that right now. But the one thing that I will share is that when I was 11, I wanted a hamster. Right? I was, I was a jerk, and I wanted a hamster. And my mother was definitely afraid of rodents. And I said, but I want a hamster, right? I, I, was, I know it's hard to believe, but I was super annoying as a child. I'm only slightly annoying now. And um, so finally she acquiesced and gave me a hamster, right? Um, but she acquiesced after I said to her, but my real mother would give me a hamster. Oh. I know that. <laughs> so, and it's a profound thing because when I kind of piece it together now, given that I was born at the end of a, you know, a war zone, I don't think that my biological mother would have given me a hamster in Thailand. But like, but that was like my thinking in 11, and so she acquiesced. Um, it wasn't until much later that I realized, after she had told me just accidentally when we were eating about her experiences of starvation during World War II, that one of the things her family had to do was eat rodents. 
So that was the reason why she had such an aversion. And if I had listened differently and not necessarily pushed, like, you know, well, my real mother would have done this, but if I had actually asked, well, why doesn't my mother want me to have a hamster? I might have gotten to that story 20 years earlier, which actually kind of brings me to the last um, point of significance. And, you know, reviewing the pieces, um, they resonate for me because, as I mentioned, my father passed away. And um, he had brain cancer, and the thing about brain cancer is that you lose your memory. And um, I realized, like, and my mother's 85 as well, that I had assumed so much about my parents. And it wasn't until I was faced with the absolute loss of their memory that it became pretty apparent um, that I had not done even my due diligence as a daughter, as somebody who could adequately transmit their stories. So with that said, I really want to stress that what you're doing, each of the contributors to the collection, you're actually doing that so important memory work before it's too late, right? Like, you know, many of the stories um, you're dealing with are about belatedness with regard to justice, etc. but actually reading the archive produced is pretty phenomenal because it is really, it's, it's salvage work and profound salvage work at that, so thank you.